Rory, thanks for coming to speak with us today. Good, great to be here. Can you share with us a bit of your background? Uh, so, graduate of this university, I studied arts here uh, in the 1990s, and uh, was born in Albany on the south coast, and uh, then studied over east, and now I'm uh, back and married to Susan. We've got four boys, 10 years old and younger. Handful, yeah. Hey? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and if I may ask, uh, what's prepared you or qualified you to be able to speak with us about these ancient texts? Well, I think when I was at, at university, I came in from a uh, kind of a Christian background. It was very questioning, so I started to do some reading then to think, oh, is there? Uh, so I was from a religious family, but I was thinking, is there any? Is there anything to stand on here? Are there any foundations, or is it all just kind of things that Mum said or? whatever and uh, um, so I started to do some reading into that area and that kind of led eventually so now I'm a PhD student at Macquarie University in Sydney which has got a very good ancient history department and uh, uh, that's where I'm, I'm completing a thing on a, uh, an, a New Testament historian uh, called Donald Robinson so that's kind of so I, I mean I'm kind of not exactly in the area but our department's very into historical Jesus studies and I've been personally very curious about um, about the nature of the evidence we have for Jesus so yeah, excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, we're excited to have you here and really um, looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Great. Um, I'll leave you here so you want to get yourself set up. Excellent. And I'll give you this one. Great. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. Great to see you guys all here. Like we say, we're hoping to finish in time for Q&A uh, before... Um, 11.45, so you better get to your next uh, class, but really excited to uh, come and uh, think with you about one of my favourite uh, topics, which is the nature of the evidence we have for Jesus, the historical reliability or otherwise uh, of the Gospels. So uh, I want to start with three quotes uh, to get you thinking. First quote's from Bart Erdman, and uh, Bart says this, I don't think there's any serious historian who doubts the existence of Jesus. We have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from his time period. Our second quote is from Gezer Vermesh, who says, To believe that he has been imagined or invented, he is Jesus, is a much harder task than to rely on the available evidence, which is obviously not as clear-cut as one would like, but is sufficiently good to say that somebody by the name of Jesus existed around the time when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea in the first century AD. And then the third quote is from E.P. Sanders, who says this, The dominant view among scholars today seems to be that we can know pretty well what Jesus was out to accomplish, that we can know a lot about what he said, and that those two things make sense within the world of first century Judaism. Uh, they're the three quotes I wanted to uh, begin with, and there's three reasons I wanted to draw your attention to them. Uh, firstly, they're all from leading... Uh, scholars in the field of historical Jesus studies. So E.P. Sanders is a professor of religion at Duke University, Gaze of Amesh was a professor of Jewish studies at Oxford, and Bart Erdman is continuing distinguished professor at University of North Carolina. Uh, these guys aren't kind of weekend keyboard warriors, they haven't got like a marginal blog uh, somewhere with a flashing thing saying that you're the 1,000th visitor and you win something. Uh, these guys are major and significant uh, writers and researchers in the field. Uh, secondly, second reason I wanted to draw your attention to these quotes is that these are the sorts of uh, quotes that represent what would be the, the middle of the bell curve, the mainstream of historical uh, scholarship on Jesus. So like any bell curve, you've got people on the far left and people on the far right, but in the middle of historical Jesus scholarship, you have people like this saying things like this, uh, the basic reliability of the Gospels as a source for the study of the historical Jesus. 
Uh, it might be interesting to know, if you're not aware of this, that the study of the historical Jesus is a huge... Sorry, I'll go back there. Uh, the study of the historical Jesus is a huge field of academic study. There are annual conferences, there are journals, there are annual reviews, whole departments and so on. A whole scholarship dedicated not to working out whether Jesus is the Son of God or whether he's forgiven your sins or whether you should pray your prayers to him before you go to bed, but uh, who he was, what he did, what he meant to do, uh, what the nature of the evidence is for him, what impact did he have in his context. There is a vast field of study in this area. Uh, And thirdly, it's worth knowing that all the scholars that I just quoted are not themselves Christians. Uh, so it might be the kind of thing where I've, I've found the kind of fellow religious nuts in the department uh, that believe that stuff. But in actual fact, E.P. Sanders is personally agnostic. Uh, Geza Vermesh is Jewish and Bart Erdman is an atheist. Uh, so I've deliberately avoided people who you might think have got a dog in this fight and tried to give you people who themselves are not religious, don't uh, worship Jesus as the Son of God, but who reflect what would be the mainstream understanding of what we can and can't know about Jesus. Uh, so my title for the talk is, Are the Gospels Historically Reliable? The Gospels are overwhelmingly about Jesus. They're biographies of some sort, uh, giving an account of Jesus. And uh, the question is, are they reliable? Uh, ultimately, I guess, about him. Do they give us true and helpful information about him? And I just wanted to be kind of upfront and tell you where my dog is in this fight. Uh, I, uh, I want to help to clear some of the debris that I think can exist between people and Jesus. Uh, so I'm not like those first three scholars. I'm hugely enthusiastic and partisan about Jesus. I think he's fantastic. Uh, I think he's worth uh, following and knowing and studying. And uh, I'm a PhD student at Macquarie University, but my day job is a pastor at a local church. Uh, So in terms of breaking bad, I'm more of a pusher and a user than a meth cook. Uh, Less Walter White and more Jesse Pink. Uh, But I noticed in my day job as a pusher uh, that uh, sometimes there exists this debris between people and Jesus that they think I I would be, I want people to be interested in Jesus. Uh, And one of the things on the road is people thinking, but can you know anything about Jesus? Uh, Is Jesus a myth or is he grounded in history? Is there any information that we could kind of rest on that we could both agree this is is true, this is accurate, this is something on which we can both uh, build? And that's the the kind of agenda I've got today uh, to to clear that debris so that you've got a fighting chance of understanding the claims of Jesus. Or I can put it in terms of three goals or three outcomes for today. Uh, Firstly, I want... Religious people, Christian people, to come out of this maybe a little less naive about the nature of the evidence that we have. So if you're a Christian person, I'd love you to walk away from this uh, because sometimes we claim too much or we don't know the field or we haven't thought about the complexities. And if you're a Christian and you walk away today thinking, ah, oh, it's a little bit more complex than I thought it was, that's one of the outcomes that I was going for. Sorry if that's disconcerting, um, but I hope that it's helpful. Uh, Secondly, I want to challenge naive scepticism. So I want to challenge naive religiosity, people, uh, if if you just think this is an uncomplicated question, but also naive scepticism, who just say, people who just say, there's there's nothing here, this is just pure myth, pure fantasy, nothing of any uh, historical nature. That's not true either, and I want to move us away from that. And then thirdly, third outcome for both religious and sceptical people, uh, I want us to ask better questions. 
I think one of the tricks in research is to choose the best questions and to ask them, and uh, I think we can ask better questions than some of the ones we ask, and I'll get back to that at the end. So are we on the same page? Anyone in the wrong lecture? <laughs> All right, let's go. So defining our terms, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, or if you met, if you heard his mum calling out to him in a village, you would have heard the words Yeshua bin Yosef. Uh, that's what he would have been called in Israel. A Jewish rabbi of the first century of the common era, born in 4 BC, our first remarkable uh, feat of Jesus was to be born before his birthday, um, but that's just because uh, someone in the Middle Ages screwed up the date by about four years. Uh, born in 4 BCE in the Common Era and lived until 30 or 33 AD, at which point he was crucified in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate. Our, our question is we're, we're investigating the historical Jesus, and I want to pause on that phrase for a bit. There's such a thing as the historical Jesus, and when we talk about the historical Jesus, we're talking about that Jesus who can be known by means of historiography. The Jesus that can be known by means of the tools of the historian to investigate someone in the past. So notice when we're talking about the historical Jesus, we're not just asking the question, did Jesus exist? So if I can ask you this question, uh, did your great-great-great-grandfather exist? And the answer to that question is definitely yes. Your great-great-great-grandfather existed. That's not a question of history, that's a question of biology. There's just something, and you need to go to the biology department about how babies are made. If you haven't found that out yet, uh, we can talk afterwards or in Q&A. But the way babies are made means that everyone in this room has a great-great-great-grandfather. But what can a historian teach you about your great-great-great-grandfather? Now, that's a different question. That actually depends on the evidence. Uh, Because you might be from a very prominent uh, or successful family where your great-great-great-grandfather was in the newspapers and there was a biography written about him and there's a whole ton of evidence. Or you might be from a working-class Northern Irish immigrant family like mine and the only thing you can say about my great-great-great-grandfather is that he existed. Uh, but was otherwise unremarkable and nothing else is written about him. I think maybe he was baptised in a church somewhere once. Uh, My great-great-great-grandfather is 100% true biologically. He had to have existed, but almost nothing can be known about him historically because of the nature of the family that I come from and the, the nature of the evidence that's available to him. Does that make sense? So when we're talking about the historical Jesus, we're asking the question not uh, what, you know, biologically was there someone like that, or even by faith, is there someone that I pray to and that hears my prayers and that I had a vision of, uh, maybe to quote Depeche Mode, the personal Jesus, uh, the Jesus that you maybe have encountered in a religious experience, that may or may not be valid, but that's not what we mean by the historical Jesus. If you've had a personal encounter with Jesus, that may, may be 100% true, And yet it wouldn't be relevant to today's question because we're talking about the Jesus that can be known by history. Does that make sense? All right. That's the Jesus we're talking about. And I want to give you uh, five uh, questions and answers that I think get us into the the space we want to occupy. The first question that people have is, does the Bible contain historical information about Jesus? Because the Bible might contain uh, religious information about Jesus. There might be accounts of people who had visions of Jesus or people who had 
who felt that Jesus had forgiven their sins and so on. Does the Bible contain historical information about Jesus? And the answer is yes. Uh, Let me quote to you from the opening of the Gospel of Luke, which is the third gospel in the New Testament. Uh, This is a direct quote from, from the Bible. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught." Now, just pause for a moment. This is a quote from the Bible, from the the third gospel in the New Testament. Notice the kind of writing it is. It's not someone who's reporting on a vision that they had uh, or an experience that they encountered in church. It's someone uh, traditionally called Luke who decides to write up the things that have been accomplished amongst us. That is, a, a bunch of stuff that has happened somewhere in time and space. And notice that Luke is not the first cab off the rank. So Luke, who's writing in, whose book is in the New Testament, says that he comes to the piece late. He's like, he's later on, and what he's done is gathered together these other sources, that there's these other people who have tried to write up, that is to create uh, what historians see as primary sources, and Luke steps into that picture and says, I've got an agenda here, which is to bring some order to that, to write an orderly account of the things that happened amongst us. In the Bible, you have four Gospels. Each of them are named after their traditional author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those Gospels, which begin the New Testament, uh, despite a fair bit of diversity between them, present the figure of Jesus as someone who lived between the time of, uh, of Augustus to the time of Tiberius and, uh, and Pontius Pilate, someone embedded in the history of the first century. Born under Augustus in the north of Israel, a teacher and a prophet, active in the north and then later in the south. Uh, he cleanses the temple. He does something that draws the attention of the authorities to him and he's crucified under Pontius Pilate, like I say, in 30 or 33 A.D., Uh, The Gospels are full of historic and geographical details. Figures like Augustus, Pilate, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and Herod Agrippa. Places like Galilee, Jericho, and Jerusalem. Specific locations like the Temple, Solomon's Promenade, the Garden of Gethsemane, and so on. Whatever else you say about the New Testament Gospels, there's no doubt that the authors meant you to think that they were talking about something that happened in history. They might be trying to con you, uh, but that's what what they mean you to think, that this is happening in time and space and in history. My second question is, can a religious source also be an historical source? One of the problems if you're you're early into your investigations of Jesus is is that you read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, you think, oh, this is great, it's like modern history, and this is going to be really easy and kind of secular and straightforward, and then like next minute, uh, there's kind of angels and uh, miracles and and all sorts of crazy happening. You think, well, what kind of thing is this? I thought it was like a historical document, turns out it's a religious text, but here's the thing. Uh, 
whether you believe in God or not yourself, whether you believe in the supernatural uh, or not, you at least, at least need to expect that the documents you read will reflect the beliefs of the time that they came from. That, that they'll be the kind of documents that come down to us. And the, the New Testament Gospels are certainly that. They were written by Jewish followers of Jesus, or in the case of Luke, a Gentile follower of Jesus. And these are all people that believe, kind of as I believe, but as lots of people don't now, in an open rather than closed universe, in a universe in which God could interact with people. Secondly, the ancient, uh, the ancient didn't separate the religious from the secular in the way that we do. Uh, they did not have a distinction between a religious source and a secular source. Uh, at the moment, with our four children, we're reading uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey to them. I don't know if you've read uh, those works by uh, Homer. They are wild. Uh, they're full of miracles and gods that enter in and come out and half-gods, and they're super violent, and they're just nuts. Uh, Homer's uh, work is just this incredible like cacophony of you know gods and and wars and so on, and kind of things that seem miraculous and unbelievable. And you think, what kind of text is this? This is a religious text, and this is a fantastic, you know, fantasy text. And up to the 19th century, uh, in the 19th century, everyone believed that, that Homer was the great work of a, of a great imagination, that this is this is extraordinary uh, person's ability to dream up all this stuff. But of course, there was no Troy, no Helen, uh, no Mycenae. But someone forgot to tell the amateur archaeologist Henrik Schleiman, uh, who went off with his shovel in the 19th century and started digging for Troy, and sure enough, found it. And similar things have happened with the study of the Gospels. Now, the Gospels have never been thought to be in the same category as Homer. Everyone thought Homer was complete fantasy. No one's ever thought that about the Gospels, but they thought maybe there are kind of elements here that aren't historical. Uh, and like Homer, uh, people have just kind of discovered, to their surprise, that things that were thought to be unhistorical turn out to be so. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, there's the Pool of Bethsaida, uh, which there were, you know, documents written to say, oh, this is a, a, an imagining of the author of the Gospel of John uh, about a made-up place that isn't in history, but his imagination uh, until sure enough in the 1960s, you dig a little bit to the left in Jerusalem and there it is. Uh, it's those kinds of discoveries that have led the Yale uh, professor of Greek history, Donald Kagan, to adopt a position that he calls the higher naivete. Uh, he says that when you first read history uh, written in Greek, he's a Greek historian, when you first read Greek history as a kid, you think this is all true. And then he says as at university, as an undergraduate and postgraduate, you think none of this is true. And then he says he adopts what he says is the higher naivety, and he says, now, as a professor, I believe anything if it's written in Greek or Latin. <laughs> and then he pauses for a dramatic effect, and he says, unless it can't be believed. Uh, just too many times we've assumed things aren't true, they turn out to be there, and so now he, he thinks the onus is on a text like that not being true uh, rather than being uh, interrogated as something that is likely not. You see, ancient historians, the ancients didn't separate the religious from the secular in the way we do. I don't think the distinction would make a whole lot of sense for them. And just as a kind of truth and advertising warning, if you want to go into ancient history and you don't like reading religious texts, it's definitely the wrong field uh, because they're all religious. Uh, you're just not going to find something that doesn't talk about an open universe. There aren't those sort of documents. But what about bias? 
one of the problems people have is that you talk about the New Testament Gospels, and they're not just written by religious people, they're written by people who are signed up with Team Jesus. Uh, these are people who think that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ. Doesn't their bias disqualify them from writing serious historic, historical information? And the answer, of course, is not at all. Because all sources are biased. Everything anyone ever writes is biased uh, for the very simple reason that humans don't write books about things they're not interested in. It just doesn't happen. You know, if, you, and if, you're, if you're in a library and you think, I want to learn about Gandhi, and you find a book about Gandhi, and on the back it says, the author lives in Connecticut, and prior to her publishing agreement, she had no interest in the figure of Gandhi, you don't think, oh, this is going to be great. You know, you're perfectly happy to read on the back of this, you know, that she went and hung out in an ashram for a while and she's a pacifist and she worked to uh, see refugees released off Nauru and that's why she's interested in Ghana. You think, great, of course. That's what's going to happen and that, that's what happens in the New Testament. People who are into Jesus write books about Jesus and that's kind of like insert every historical document ever here. Uh, that's how it happens. And so as historians, you account for bias, but you don't dismiss on account of bias. Uh, third one is the Bible just one source. Uh, one of the concerns that people have as they want to investigate Jesus is I think, I hear Christians talking about the Bible and just intuitively I think, I'm not sure I want to put all my eggs in one basket. Uh, if there's just one source, maybe that's not enough to go on. Uh, I think all of us intuitively share a thing that historians formally call uh, the criterion of multiple attestation, which is like a long way of saying that something is more believable if more than one person says it. So if I say there was a crash on the freeway on the way up today and I'm the only person who reported it, that's not as good as if there were two or three or four people that all said that they saw it. Now, the truth is that for, for the vast majority of ancient history, um, the criterion of multiple attestation is a luxury that the evidence doesn't afford us. Uh, for, for vast ways of ancient history, you just have to deal with one source because that's all you've got. That's all that survived from the ancient world. And uh, so again, ancient history is not a place where you want to do a lot of whinging about that. It's good if you can get it, uh, but you often can't. But it turns out that Jesus is not one of those figures. Uh, Jesus isn't one of the people for whom we only have one source. Uh, firstly, because the, the Bible is not just one source. The Bible is just an easy way of talking about a library, a collection of books. 66 uh, books are included in the Bible. And in the New Testament, which talks about Jesus, you get at least three big blocks of information. So you've got the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've got the Gospel of John, and you've got the letters of Paul. The Synoptics, the first three Gospels, they're called that because synopsis, that means you see things together. They all seem to see Jesus in a similar way. Then you've got the Gospel of John, and he is smoking from his own uh, pipe and has got a particular vision of Jesus that is quite distinctive. And then you've got the, the Apostle Paul, who is fascinating and favoured by historians, uh, maybe you can guess why. Because he's a Jew, and therefore he's like not biased. So he, he's, he's definitely a Jew, uh, and not only was he not biased, his, his first job was to kill Christians. 
Um, so he's the opposite of, uh, you know, a Team Jesus fanboy. Uh, he, he was around killing, Je- killing people who followed Jesus. You want to guess the other bit? Certainly, yeah, highly educated, probably the most educated person in the New Testament, maybe possible exception of, uh, of, of, of Luke. The thing that historians particularly like about him, yeah, educated and used to be anti, uh, the main reason actually is that he doesn't set out to write the history of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are all people, if you ask them, what are you doing? They would say, I'm writing the story of the life of Jesus. Whereas if you ask Paul, what are you doing? He says, I'm writing a letter to Corinth to tell people to stop sleeping with people they're related to, to stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, uh, to start doing church better. He never sits down and thinks, I want to give you information about Jesus. So everything you get in Paul is accidental, uh, which for historians is way better uh, because the person that's writing by accident isn't as shaped as the person who's set out to present things in the way they want them presented. So you've got uh, the synoptics, you've got John, and you've got... Paul, and just to go a little bit nerdier for a second, within the Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, you have sources behind those. You saw that in Luke. Remember Luke says there's all these other people who try to write stuff and I'm chiming in uh, to do, give you my stuff. Uh, this is what happens here in, in the kind of most uh, agreed theory of how the Gospels came together. You have Matthew, Mark and Luke, they're in a Bible. Any Bible that you get from the library will have Matthew, Mark and Luke in them. But Matthew and Luke have, seem to have access to Mark because they'll quote Mark. So you've got to imagine they're at their desk with Mark up there and they're quoting from Mark. And if you can see from the diagram, Matthew and Luke both quote from a source that we call Q. Uh, which is a source that you work out must have existed, almost certainly, uh, because Matthew and Luke quote, you know, verbatim sometimes from this same source, but Mark seems to have no access to it. So you've got a source that's quoted in those guys that's not quoted by Mark, and then you've got M for the, the material that Matthew has that neither Mark nor Q nor Luke seem to have, and then you've got special... Uh, source material L for all the stuff that Luke has uh, that no one else seems to have access to. So do you see, the, the, the simple, you go from, oh, there's what the Bible says about Jesus, to actually within the library that we call the Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and then within that, you have these multiple sources uh, that are coming together to give you a complete uh, picture of Jesus. So one of the great privileges of studying Jesus is that we're not limited to one source. Uh, we have all this uh, evidence for him. Now, one of the quest- uh, second to last uh, question, I think, uh, are there any non-Christian references to Jesus? Uh, now, the answer to this could easily be no, and that would be okay. Because we're already at a point here where, of course, you expect... Uh, people who are into someone to write stuff about them. We've got multiple attestation. We've got lots of sources from within the New Testament that aren't correlated with each other, that uh, amount to different perspectives on Jesus. That would be enough to firmly establish a figure like Jesus, especially a figure like Jesus, who, from the perspective of the first century, looked relatively marginal. So he never held office, he wasn't the governor of anywhere, he wasn't the Caesar, he wasn't an official 
rabbi or anything like that, uh, you would not expect a huge literary deposit to be left behind by a marginal prophet from the north of Israel. Uh, but we have what we've got, and it turns out that actually, yes, uh, outside of the Bible, outside of the people who are writing uh, on Team Jesus, there are references to him. Let me just give you two of them before we finish. Uh, this is from Tacitus, uh, who's a, a Roman operative. He says, The Christians derive their name from a man called Christ, who, during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition thus checked for the moment broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. So you've got a guy here, this is obviously not a Christian, not someone who thinks this is a good thing. In fact, if you were reading that, you kind of think he's neutral to slightly negative. Um, <laughs> uh, deadly superstition is not a compliment. And uh, all things hideous and shameful is not the way you big up a new religion. Uh, but there he is, and you can derive the kind of information you get in the Gospels uh, from someone like Tacitus. Uh, secondly, of uh, about a dozen sources we could quote, here's Josephus, perhaps the most famous reference. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men amongst us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending the third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, have still not to this day disappeared. Uh, that's the famous quote from Josephus. And the two things you need to know about that is that most historians uh, think that probably some well-meaning scribes in latter centuries inserted some of the material into there. Uh, so most historians would think, for example, that uh, Josephus probably doesn't say he was the Christ, and Josephus probably doesn't say that he appeared uh, on the third day. Uh, probably what happened, this is very common in ancient texts, that you'll get a scribe who's writing that, and you know, maybe Josephus says uh, he was the so-called Christ, and a, you know, a scribe says, no, he was the Christ, and, uh, and cross out that bit. So almost all historians, and certainly I would be in this camp, think that someone's tampered with this text, and uh, almost all historians believe that there's a historical core here that's been tampered with. Uh, so there's Certainly a reference here, one of two in Josephus to Jesus. And it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to cross out the bits that a scribe has probably put in and still see there uh, a kind of clear uh, outline of the history of Jesus. Okay, I'm going to finish and then we've got time for some questions. Uh, I want to end like a little bit more philosophically or personally and ask what are the limits of the sources of the Bible as a source about Jesus? What's the limit of what we've talked about today? Um, hi history can get you so far. So I think on a kind of impartial, sensible investigation of this, you can confidently walk toward Jesus knowing that we have as rock-solid information about him as you could ever hope to expect from any figure at his time in history. 
I think of all the things you can lose sleep over, you don't need to lose sleep over the idea that we can't know Jesus historically. Uh, we really can. Uh, we can study him in good faith. But to know about Jesus is not what Christians mean by knowing Jesus. Uh, the Christian proposition, proposition isn't that Jesus exists. Uh, in my department at Macquarie, uh, there's a whole ton of people who do epic study into Jesus who are not Christians, don't go to church, don't uh, believe in God or whatever. Uh, the Christian proposition is not only that Jesus exists, uh, but that Jesus exists and that you can trust him. That, that he's making a claim on other human beings uh, that you can entrust your life to him and follow him. I think the closest analogy I've got for the kind of field um, of study, the historical Jesus, what you can know, is, is climate science. I see in, in, in climate science, like the bell curve, the vast majority of people in the field believe that the climate is changing and that humans are contributing to that change. Are we all aware of this? Uh, and like any kind of bell curve, there's some crazies down here and there's some crazies up here, but the, the vast majority are in the middle saying that stuff. Uh, just like climate change, it's possible that the blogs are right. Like sometimes the cranks get it right, correct? So it might be that in 100 years uh, we'll find one of those crazy blogs with the flashing signs and the, bait, the clickbait and all the rest of it and think, oh, this guy got it right. Maybe just by coincidence that if everyone's saying something, someone will get something right at some stage. You know, a, a stopwatch is right twice a day and uh, maybe the cranks will get it right. But I, I, I know nothing about climate science except for what I kind of am exposed to uh, as I read newspapers and, and you know, cruise around Facebook and so on, uh, I think that the onus, if I want to deny the, the, the overwhelming majority of, of the consensus of climate scientists, um, I, don't, I need better information than they've got. Like, I need to be able to say, uh, you're wrong, and I know everything you know, and I know a bit more than you know, because I've discovered this other thing you didn't think about, or I've got a way of seeing the, the data in a way that you've never thought about, and it's startling, and it's brilliant, and so on. But I don't think it's my position to chip in from the far left or the far right of the bell curve and say, oh, I just don't think that's true, uh, because like, I want to keep driving my car, or, or whatever the, the case may be. And the field of Jesus research is like that. You might occasionally hit up against a blog that's claiming this, that, or the other, and you know sometimes the cranks are right, uh, but there's a lot of heavy lifting there to do because the overwhelming consensus is that this is a topic that we can pursue in good faith with excellent historiographical evidence. That's it. We've got a few minutes for questions, and then I'll hand back to Rob. But thanks for your attention, and great to be able to share with you. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Is it, much is it possible for us to know anything about the uh, authors of the Gospels? Do we know much about Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Do we know much about the authors of the Gospels? Uh, no, not much at all. No, no. We've got um, uh, the, the attribution of them as the authors is later. Uh, that happens in the second or third century. So you can't even be 100% sure that, that you know, we talk about Luke. Uh, and then all, you, all you've got apart from that is internal evidence, uh, some of which is, it's all quite conjectural, but some of it's impressive. I think Luke is the most impressive because Luke writes a second volume called Acts, 
And in the book of Acts, uh, the author the author switches from the uh, second person to the first person and starts talking about we, as in myself and Paul. And if you correlate that with the letters of Paul, Paul also talks about a Luke that travels with him. So I think that probably in, in order of dissension, Luke is, I think there's the most impressive case that Luke is written by Luke. And there is some internal evidence that all of them... Uh, are not named by those authors for no reason, um, but it's not the kind of thing you could go you could go to the stake over. Yes. Um, is there any um, like legit evidence to, or in the Bible or not in the Bible that shows that Jesus is the Son of God and that His miracles aren't just like fake? Uh, certainly, one of the things in the last twenty years is been, there's been a growing consensus. Uh, now, listen to how carefully I word this. On the belief that Jesus, on a growing consensus that Jesus was someone of whom it was believed that he performed miracles. So I'm making that really careful. Uh, but as in one of the questions 20, 30 years ago was, oh, all the miracle stuff, that must be later. That's like someone's trying to beef up the story a bit. And the movement has swung back to say uh, that, no, it seems like if you're going to try to account for Jesus, the reputation as a miracle worker makes sense of the kind of impact he has uh, in the world. Um, so there's a massive swing back towards that, but that's different from saying, then you say he has that reputation, and I would say, I'm open to miracles, so bring it on. And the guy next to me says, uh, I don't believe in miracles, so I think he must have been like a, a charlatan or a trickster or whatever. Um, but the idea that he had that reputation is a very strong part of the current consensus. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that there are alternative sources, such as the account of Tacitus, uh, who rejected Christ as the Saviour and rejected the resurrection, mm-hmm. it seems that a key point of contention is uh, the re- resurrection of Christ yeah. between uh, non-Christian historians and Christian historians. How would you respond to someone's uh, making the claim that there is simply insufficient evidence for the res- resurrection of Christ? Cool, great. I'll finish with this one because now we've got to hand it back. So, I, I, you know, I think the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, uh, and I'm going to say this very carefully as well, uh, is as strong, if not stronger, than the, than the evidence for anything else Jesus did or is claimed about Jesus in his life. So uh, the resurrection, you have multiple attestation, you have criterions of dissimilarity, you have criterions of, uh, um, of embarrassment, uh, you've got, uh, anyway, there's all these technical things and, and the, the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, which are in Matthew and Mark and Luke uh, and in, uh, in Paul, and in, it, it's overwhelming. So if, if you took out the phrase resurrection and said, uh, Jesus, um, uh, you know, cleansed the temple and you had that much evidence, no one would doubt it. It would be overwhelmingly strong. The problem with the resurrection of Jesus is not the evidence, uh, but the worldview behind it. Um, so there's a good reason to reject the resurrection of Jesus, which is that there's no God to do it. And if you don't believe that there's a God to do it, then uh, what explanation works? Anything. Anything's better than saying God did it. Um, but the, the evidence, as you look at it, in, is, is, is very impressive. Um, uh, perhaps the most impressive thing in the Gospels, but it brings you to the question of God. And... Uh, Yeah, okay, cool, thanks.